Welcome to the Food Lens Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Smart, New England food writer and founder of The Not Just Company. And I'm your host, Molly Ford, co-founder of The Food Lens, your online resource for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. On each episode of our podcast, we chat with restaurant industry insiders, digging into business, passion projects, and food trends to see what's shaping the New England restaurant scene. Today, Irene Lee from May May Restaurant and Food Track will be joining us in studio. Hey, Catherine and Pete. Hi, how's it going? Good. I love having both of you next to me today. I know. This is like real working mom life. I've got my baby strapped to my chest and we just are saying a little prayer that he stays quiet. Yeah. Um, but no, no crying today, Pete. No crying. It's not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Babies do what they want. Um, but there's no way that he could be sad. I mean, we have Irene Lee coming in today. I know. I can't wait to talk to her. I mean, she's my neighbor, so it's sad we've never met before, but can't wait to pick her brain about what goes on at Maymay because it's such an interesting Chinese-American menu, you know? Yeah, and she's such an interesting person. I actually met her through the Fresh Collective, which is like a group of um, female food entrepreneurs in Boston. Uh, Maggie Batista and Lee Belanger started this group. And I got to have dinner with her one day and Lauren Friel and a few other women. And she was like dashing over from some board meeting of a board that she sits on and dealing with her restaurant. And I'm always so impressed with how she balances all these different pieces uh, of her career. So I can't wait to dig in. I know. I heard she's really involved in the community, and I've always been really impressed that she works with her siblings. I couldn't imagine working with my brothers. Oh, my gosh. Jenny and I would probably kill each other. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Love you so much, Jen. but (laughs) (laughs) But it seems to be working for them, so I can't wait to talk to her. Irene, I'm so excited to finally meet you. I live across the street from Maymay, so I'm a regular. Um, but welcome to the studio. We're excited to talk. Thank you so much. This is really exciting. Well, even though I eat the food at Maymay all the time, um, I didn't realize, you know, your family has a deep history with food. I was reading about your your grandparents' restaurant in New York. Yeah. So my dad's parents immigrated in the 50s, and they ended up opening a Chinese restaurant in Harlem, and then later another one in White Plains, New York. Um, and they were sort of the classic immigrant restaurant owner story, which was like back in their country, they were professionals um, and highly educated. And then when they showed up here, they had six mouths to feed. And so they just opened a restaurant and kind of figured it out as they went. Yeah, it sounded like a pretty pretty fun restaurant, right? I mean, there was a lot going on. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, they did all kinds of different events and promotions, and they really wanted to show sort of the upscale side of Chinese cuisine. Um, when my grandmother found out about chop suey, she was mortified. <laughs> and so they really focused on like banquet menus and sort of more ornate dishes. Um, she wore like a fancy dress to work, and they would like bang a gong when certain plates came out of the kitchen. So I think that they, you know, struck a really good balance between making it like a fun cultural experience um, that still had, you know, integrity to it and personality, not just like a sort of kitschy, like bugaboo creek of Chinese food. <laughs> um, and in addition to that, uh, they had a lot of fun with cocktails and drinks. And um, there's some recipes that we actually still have. Um, so there's one called the Temple Bell, which has um all kinds of liqueurs in it. And then apparently just like whatever soda you happen to have on hand goes in there. So sometimes it's Coke, sometimes it's Sprite, sometimes it's soda water. So all sorts of kind of fun stuff going on there. I feel like I'm a little bit hungover just thinking about that, but (laughs) it also sounds super fun. (laughs) Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, (laughs) Irene, so I'm curious. I mean, clearly you're 
your family has this history with the restaurant business and food. But when I was looking at your biography, you had like quite the winding road to getting into the restaurant business. So I'm, I read that you had worked in prisons. You've done work with organic farming. Um, I'm really curious. Uh, how did was was that always the plan that you would sort of follow in your family's footsteps and end up in food or not so much? Definitely not. So the next generation of the sort of immigrant restaurant story, I think, is that um, the children of the immigrants and restaurant owners end up becoming doctors, lawyers, and physicists um, because their parents worked so hard, you know, to get a foot in the door in this new country. So that is exactly what all of my aunts and uncles are. Um, And now, you know, my brother and sister and I were sort of this generation that has the privilege of, you know, growing up with relative comfort and resources and being able to do whatever it is that we want. The joke is like, oh, it skips a generation, you know. Grandma was a restaurant owner and now her grandchildren are. But I think for us it's also about wanting to sort of honor that history while also recognizing that we are not immigrant restaurant owners. Um, We have a lot of privileges that folks who are new to this country do not have. And so in trying to run our restaurant with as much integrity as possible, I think that's sort of an homage to the fact that lots of people do this work out of necessity, um, not out of choice. You, again, in your bio, were talking about your high school experience and the mountain school. And I don't know many people you know, as accomplished as you who talk about their high school experience. So I'm curious how that, you know, affected you and why you feel like that's an important sort of part of your story. Yeah, well, so the mountain school in particular, I think, is a very special chapter of my life because I lived on a 50-acre organic farm with 44 other 16-year-olds and really got to see food kind of up close and personal for the first time. Generally, I I do talk about high school and the way that I grew up because I think it's important for me to be really honest with people about where I come from and especially, you know, the, the privilege that I've had. I think a lot of stories of entrepreneurs really focus on like grit and inspiration um, and like those things are really important. But also, like if you had a trust fund, that does a lot, too. Um, and I think that, you know, if we're not talking about how intergenerational wealth impacts our ability to go out and be a successful entrepreneur, um, then we're missing a really big piece of the puzzle. So I think for me, I really want to be able to support other entrepreneurs and also to say, you know, it's not just about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Everyone can do a certain amount of that, but it is true that some of us start with more resources and trying to be realistic about that and then think about that as a way to inspire us and to inspire the team at Maymay to really want to pay it forward to other people. Yeah. And I feel like no matter where you are on that spectrum, like that honesty is useful for everyone. You know, I think you're so right about this narrative. It's moving on a little bit beyond the bro culture, but there's still this idea that, you know, we're all just just grinding it out and making it happen. And, you know, that's that's not a narrative that really serves the greater entrepreneurial population. Totally. A lot of that translates into your restaurant, Maymay and food truck. What was the thought behind opening Maymay back in, what was it, 2012? 2012, yeah. So the food truck scene was sort of just starting to happen in Boston, and my brother had worked in fine dining in the city for many, many years. I think he was tired of wearing a suit, Um, and so he called me and my sister and said, like, hey, have you seen these TV shows about food trucks? What would you think about coming home and and helping me start a food truck? And we were like, oh, like, that sounds pretty cool. You know, honestly, the way we all thought of it was, like, here's an experiment. Um, We're just going to jump in with both feet and see what happens. We're going to see how much sort of farm-to-table, made-from-scratch food we can produce. Um, And 
I will say also it was sort of a side project because initially we all moved home to be closer to our parents. Um, Our dad was getting older. And so I don't know that there was ever a plan to open a food truck and then have it turn into a restaurant. It's more that it kind of just all spiraled out of control. Um, (laughs) Like all great adventures. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, people say like, oh, you must have been so successful with the food truck that you opened a restaurant a year and a half later. And we say, oh, yeah, that sounds really nice. But the truth is, like, we knew that it just wasn't going to be sustainable unless we opened our own place. So opening the restaurant for us was really about creating something that was more permanent and that gave us more flexibility to take on different business opportunities um, and also to just not force people to work outside in the winter, um, which is pretty brutal on a food truck. If you drop a cup of water, you have a skating rink like instantly. (laughs) Um, So Boston in some ways does not really lend itself to that industry. But yeah, it was really about, I think, wanting to just have fun, wanting to work with each other, wanting to celebrate being in our hometown. And also, in terms of the food, kind of sharing our perspective as Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, um, you know, kids who grew up eating stir fry and like braised pork at home. But of course, we also loved mozzarella sticks and pizza and all the other things that just any sort of American kid eats. Well, I have to admit, I have two older brothers and I can't imagine starting a business with them. Can you tell us about the dynamic of working with your siblings? Yeah. So I'm the youngest by eight and nine years. Uh, So I didn't exist for a long time while they were growing up together. And um, I think that there are a lot of upsides to working with siblings. And of course, there are some downsides. (laughs) Um, There are totally things that we didn't agree on and probably never will. What I feel like is really important to say is that my brother and sister trusted me to take on the menu, to take on kitchen operations, um, to work on hiring and sourcing in a way that no sane restaurant owner ever would or should. Um, But I think that, you know, they believed in me in this way that only family could. And that is one of the reasons that we are still here today and I'm still here today getting to do this. Um, But of course, it is really hard to work with family sometimes. And a lot of it is that The restaurant industry demands a lot of sacrifice from people. And at a certain point, you don't want to ask your family to sacrifice anymore. So, you know, I might be frustrated that my brother can't come to work because his son is sick. But, you know, that's also my nephew. Um, So I think there's also a point where it just becomes very hard to balance the demands of both family and business. It's not even about arguing or disagreements. It's just that there has to be enough room for both of those things in every relationship. Catherine, you know I love my wine, so I want to talk about Weinster for a minute. A what-a-stir? Did you say wine? Because you know I am so excited to be drinking wine again now that this baby is born. Well, Weinster curates great wines from small producers in the U.S. You browse their collection of unique, hard-to-find wines, and then they ship it straight to your door with fast, cheap delivery. Is this a wine club? Like those pricey fruit basket and Chardonnay things my parents used to pick out from catalogs like back in the 90s? Definitely not. Weinster does have a club program with special member pricing for some of the best bottles, but there's no commitment and it starts at just $79 per shipment. Plus, unlike a lot of other clubs, the selections are from small production wineries. You have the option to repurchase your favorite bottles and you get 24-7 access to an expert wine advisor. Oh, and you get free shipping on wine gifts that you want to send to friends or family or... Co-hosts? Yes, co-hosts, like you. So you're telling me I don't need to pack up my baby or put on pants to get great wine? And when I finally do leave the house, I can show up to book club with something so much better than the usual grocery store swill? 
Exactly. So anyone and everyone who loves wine should head to www.winester.com for more information. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R.com. It sounds like your family connection like brings some humanity to how you deal with it. It seems like in conversations with you, even what you just said about, um, you know, spilling water and it becoming a skating rink and it, you know, those not being great conditions for your employees, you bring your employees into conversations about your business all the time in a way that a lot of restaurant owners, I don't hear doing that. Um, Particularly, you talk about open book management a lot. And I would love for you to dive into that a little bit and explain it. Totally. So I'm totally crazy about open book management. Um, And I would say that it's it's one of a handful of initiatives that we are working on at Maymay to really try to create better jobs for people. Um, A lot of folks who eventually leave Maymay are headed to some other industry because it's time for them to get a, quote, real job. Um, And that can be really heartbreaking. Like, how are we going to make our jobs at Maymay real jobs that people can actually stay in um, that actually support them? So I think that being sort of broadly like our project, Open Book is one of the things that we work on. So the idea behind Open Book is we teach everybody in the business, dishwashers, servers, sous chefs, everyone, how to understand business basics. So they learn about finance, um, they learn about hospitality best practices, and most importantly, they learn how to read a profit and loss statement. And what we really say is the profit and loss statement is the scoreboard of how the business is doing. Uh, Open Book really loves like sports metaphors, and as a non-athlete, um, I do my best. But the idea is, if you don't know how to play the game, it's really hard to win. And in restaurants, you tend to have a bunch of people running around who don't know how to play the game and who don't know what the score even is. So first, it's about educating everyone and trying to get them on the same page about what kind of performance we want to see, what numbers we're looking for, um, what's a good labor percentage, uh, what's a reasonable monthly cost for towels and aprons, um, you know, all those little things. And then the next step is that we try to weave them into the regular operation and sort of checkups on the business. So every four weeks, we bring everyone together. We close the restaurant for an hour and a half. Um, We make family meal. We pay everyone to sit down. And then we review the profit and loss statement together. So they get to see exactly how much revenue was brought in over the last four weeks. And then they also see sort of the highlights around cost of goods, around labor, around overheads. And we try to get them to tell us what they're seeing when they read the numbers. Um, You know, if our labor cost is high, why do they think that is? Um, is it because somebody was sick for a really long time and we paid out all their sick time? Was it because we were doing a lot of training? Was it because we had a retreat and people were clocking hours? Asking them to sort of read into those numbers and help us contextualize them. And then ultimately the goal is for them to help us make the business stronger, healthier, and more profitable, and then for us to be able to compensate them better, and potentially even with a share of the profit at the end of the year. And this all came about because I was really thinking about this employment question, and in the midst of that, I tried to hire a cook from Paris Crapery. And I really loved her. I thought she was a great fit for Maymay. She was really interested in the sort of farm element of what we do. And I offered her a job, and I was so sure she was going to take it. And she said, you know what? I want this job, but I have this incredible program at my job where I get to help make decisions and I get to see metrics and I'm going to get a huge check at the end of the year. And I said, okay, well, you know, if I can't have her, then maybe I can take the program that's keeping her there and institute it at Maymay so that when people try to steal 
our employees, <laughs> you know, we have something that's really keeping them there. And so we sort of stumbled upon open book by accident. Um, and now I would say it's key to how we run the business. Um, and it's, I think, the only reason that I'm still somewhat sane because I have so much help. There's so many people who I can talk to about, you know, profitability, about taxes, about all the little things that I think restaurant owners worry about every day. And for me to have those conversations with people without context, um, you know, you kind of just look like a jerk if you are saying, you know, don't use too many towels or like, can you cut that onion faster? But if we're all kind of on the same page about like, this is how much every towel costs. And if you don't use that towel, that money goes down to the bottom line. And the bottom line includes a bucket for profit payout. Um, so being able to all be on the same team and really not have it be like owner versus employees, but all of us trying to, you know, win at this game together, that's been just really special for us. Wow. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I do really appreciate the sports metaphors because I'm a sports gal and it helped me <laughs> fully you know, <laughs> digest what you're explaining. Um, but I'm, interest I'm especially interested um, because of the staffing crisis that's going on in Boston right now in the restaurant world. And I'm curious to hear have you seen results from implementing this? Are you finding that people are sticking around and they're more invested in working? This is the number one question we get. And um, the answer is that it has not impacted turnover. And we think that's because our turnover was pretty low in the first place. We calculated at about 20 to 40 percent, which is pretty low for our industry. But we also have sort of a unique labor force in that we're about half full-timers, most of whom are not from the restaurant industry, most of whom are very highly educated, um, under 40. And, you know, to some extent, they can afford to work for a lower wage in a more physical job. Almost any of them could go anywhere else and get a job that paid more and was easier, you know, on their bodies. But they're committed to Maymay, I think, because they believe in what we're doing. In addition to that, we also staff a ton of college students. And in the last two years in particular, we've really started to think about college students and sort of all the quirks of employing them and trying to figure out how we can make that work for us instead of just having it be like, oh, students, you know, their schedules are so weird. They have finals. They go home for the holidays. Um, but really trying to think of it as, OK, you know, if their schedule means that it doesn't make sense for them to work an eight hour shift. Um, yeah, they can't be full time and that's too bad. But maybe it means that we can entice them in for like a two hour shift where they get staff meal so they don't have to cook dinner when they get back to their dorm. Um, and they can be on call because they live on Buswell Street, right where May May is. I think generally the idea is like we're trying to make these jobs more livable. Um, and I don't know if turnover is the place where we'd measure it. It might be in just employee satisfaction. It might be in how much they feel like we listen to them um, or their ideas matter to us. But of course, turnover is the biggest problem that the industry has. It's so expensive. Um, and so I do think that for a lot of businesses, there is potential for new sort of employment modes to really help with that challenge. We had an interesting conversation with Lauren Friel for our first episode, and she had a very similar take on that and, you know, talking about how by supporting her employees and kind of meeting them where they're at, it's, it's good for her business. It was interesting how you said it helps with your mental toll of being able to sort of have these conversations out loud instead of feeling like, you know, this is all your stuff to carry around and there's no one to, to talk about it with. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've experienced as an owner, and I'm sure lots of other restaurant owners have, is 
there's this way that you can develop kind of a resentment of your employees. And I think that it's it's natural and it's human, but it's not very constructive. Um, and in some cases, it might be someone thinking like, well, you know, I didn't pay myself for the first three years of this business, but sure, like I want you to have health insurance and, a, you know, a raise and a living wage. And I totally get that. And I admit that I feel that way sometimes. But the truth is like, Employees are asking for reasonable things that like meet the standards of law. And our industry is saying how unreasonable of them. Um, and so for us, I think making sure that the jobs make sense for the people who are in them and that they actually understand what the burden is on the owner. You know, I don't have to tell my staff what I make or how bummed out I am sometimes or how worried I am about the business because they can see. They see how much profit there is and they know how much goes to debt, how much goes to taxes, and how much the new floor we installed actually cost. (laughs) So Irene, you guys opened in 2012 and you talk a lot about being kind of an interloper in the restaurant community. And I'm curious, uh, what do you think about that community now and how do you see yourself fitting into it? For us, I would say the restaurant community has been incredibly warm um, and very, very friendly, which is amazing because in a lot of ways, I feel like I don't belong and I haven't paid my dues. That being said, I do think that, you know, in Boston, I would like to see us push each other more. And I don't think that that has to be um, combative or destructive. But I also think that, you know, there hasn't been a lot of change and evolution for the restaurant industry, like broadly in Boston. I mean, I think one example would be that, like, no sort of bomb around Me Too or harassment has really exploded in Boston. Um, But if you talk to women who work in the industry, everyone has a story about somebody who was not appropriate with them, who took advantage of them in some way, who violated their physical safety. Um, And like, I don't know, you do the math and you're like, yeah, every woman has been, you know, through something. How exactly does that work? So I don't know. And, you know, it's not that I want there to be some bad guy who goes down for anything. But I'm not sure if we're really digging into the conversation about culture more broadly, um, that these sort of big events and scandals are prompting people in other cities to really start having. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's transparency once again that we're looking for. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, I mean, you have all this going on extracurriculars, May May, food truck, restaurant. You also offer dumpling classes yes. at May May regularly. Mm-hmm. We add them to our events calendar on the Food Lens because they sound awesome, but I've never taken one. Can you tell us a little about a, a little bit about this class? Definitely. So the dumpling class is one of my favorite things that we do, and it's really modeled after the sort of parties that our family would throw when we were kids. So on Lunar New Year or someone's birthday, we'd invite friends, family, neighbors, everybody over to the house, and we would pretty much all sit in a big circle around the kitchen table with a huge bowl of dumpling filling in the middle, and we would all just kind of like sit around and tell crappy jokes and fold tons and tons of dumplings. And it's this great feeling of, of getting together and creating abundance. And the goal is really to um, make sure that people who take our classes feel like they can replicate that at home. 
We teach all these different shapes, um, like roses and elephants. And it's pretty fun for kids, for people of all ages. Um, And so it's been a really great way for us to just have a different kind of engagement with the guests. And I think that's what hospitality is all about. Like, you belong here. This place is yours. Um, You're part of our community. So the classes are great for that reason. I have to say, I love your story about making dumplings with your family growing up. My brother lived in China for the last seven years, and he got married there, and we're all going to be together this Christmas. So him and I were just talking about making dumplings together as a family and maybe making it a new tradition because none of us know how to do that. So it's going to be a funny experience to do together, but hopefully. you got to learn the elephant know before you you come in. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll do a a crash course. It'll be amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I'll just walk across the street. Super casual mic drop. (laughs) Make your elephant dumpling. Like, oh, you lived in China for them? Sure. (laughs) But yeah, I'm really excited. I love a good new family tradition. So Irene, our next question actually comes from one of our Instagram followers. Kevin wants to ask you, what are some of your favorite local farms? So many good ones. And uh, this is Kevin, right? Hi, Kevin. (laughs) Thanks for your question. So I would say one of my favorite farms to visit is Allendale, which is right on the Jamaica Plain Brookline line. It's sort of the oldest continuously operating farm in the Boston area, and they grow tons and tons of really beautiful produce. We do um, farm dinners there, usually two or three times a year. We take over one of their greenhouses, we put up all these lights, and then we just order as much produce from the farm as we can fit into eight courses, and then um, people eat all that food together. So Irene, lastly, I want to talk about this awesome cookbook that you released this last year, Double Awesome Chinese Food. I feel like a lot of people don't know how much work goes into a cookbook sometimes. Can you tell us about the process? Well, I'm definitely one of the people who doesn't know how much work goes into it because, (laughs) thankfully, my sister did pretty much all of the work. Um, I stepped in after the book was published, um, after she had her baby, and did most of the PR stuff. So, yeah, that was a lot of work. But I think writing a book is something that I can't really imagine myself ever doing, but I'm so glad the cookbook exists because it's such a great, I think, representation of how we think about food and also the food that we love to eat. And then we also get photos of food that people have cooked from the book. um, And that is just like the most exciting, inspiring thing. And when we sign it, we say, cover this book in soy sauce because we just want you to use it. It's not for the coffee table, although we're honored if you put it there. (laughs) Um, But it's all about just kind of getting into the kitchen and, and trying to be fearless and trying new things. So basically, I should use the cookbook during Christmas for my new family tradition to make dumplings, Absolutely. Right? And send you pictures, and it's going to be really and fun. And I will be with joy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, perfect. I can't wait. So I'd love to wrap it up with our rapid-fire round of questions. Great. Could you name your favorite Boston dumpling besides Monday? <laughs> This is kind of cheating, but um, the woman who took care of my dad in the last couple years of his life makes the most unbelievable dumplings. She still lives at my mom's house. She puts fish and pork in them. Dive. The silhouette. Dessert. The tiramisu at Mita. And lastly, date spot. Cafe sushi. Catherine, have you signed up for our monthly newsletter? Molly, I'm embarrassed to say that until recently I actually hadn't. I thought I was on top of all things TFL, but it turns out I was missing out, especially on the cocktail recipes. Well, I'm a little offended it took you this long, but every month we highlight new content, ranging from drool-worthy can't-miss dishes to neighborhood guides, cocktail recipes, upcoming events, and more. 
And you and Sarah throw the best events. I'm waiting with bated breath to see if you do Valentine's Day again this year. I am still thinking about the charcuterie boards and the raw bar. Well, now you'll be the first to know since you actually signed up. To sign up, just go to thefoodlens.com and click on the subscribe button in the upper left-hand corner. It's the best way to avoid food FOMO in Boston. This podcast was produced by Ali Pham. A special thanks to the folks at the PRX Podcast Garage. If you enjoyed what you heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with friends and family. Your help means so much to us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show and check out thefoodlens.com for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston.